Well, I'm especially excited this morning to kind of finish up this mini-series within a series. It's taking place primarily in the second chapter of Mark. So go ahead and take your Bibles, would you? Let's open up to that section of Scripture. And let's uh, bring some concluding thoughts and analysis and application to this Q&A session that Jesus has had with the religious leaders. Here's kind of a way to set your mind on where we're headed. Um, how many of you heard the phrase, three strikes and you're out? You've heard that, right? Maybe you've used it as a parent to your child, right? Like, or maybe you've sung it at a ball game. One, two. Okay, so you know the old song, right? But you kind of uh, understand the, the, the gist behind three strikes, you're out. Well, as Mark 2 concludes, the religious leaders, namely the Pharisees, are thinking Jesus Christ is on his third strike. But here's what we find as the passage unfolds, that it's not Jesus who's out at the end. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 23. This is the third question Mark records for us. Uh, the previous two begin in about chapter 2, oh, probably around verse 13, I believe it is. The first one deals with the idea of unclean people as the Pharisees saw them. The second one deals with un, uh, unclean or, or not enough practices involving fasting. And this next one, this final one here, it kind of deals with um, the wrong kind of priorities according to the Pharisees. And what they're doing is they're really addressing, I want you to catch this, okay? They're addressing ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. So that kind of people you hang out with, uh, they were with tax collectors and publicans, uh, Christ and his disciples were. And so the Pharisees were like, hey, they're unclean. That's against the ceremonial law. You can't do that. But actually, the, the Mosaic law, before its additions by the Pharisees, actually allowed for foreigners and refugees and Gentiles to come into the family. But their additions to the law, their, their version of the law didn't allow for that. Same thing with fasting. It allowed and actually asked for fasting one day a year. But they added a bunch to it, and so the Pharisees were like, hey, you're not fasting twice a week like we do. And now it comes to the issue of the Sabbath. Uh, they're going to have more questions. So all these are really questions about Jesus Christ and his, we'll call it observance, to their version of the law, not actually God's law. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to corner him and trick him by using their man-made regulations to say to him, hey, you're, 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 you're not doing your part. And really, this is because they're threatened by him. He actually came to fulfill the law, right, church? He obeyed it perfectly. We couldn't. Jesus did. He's the, the perfect Adam who obeyed everything God said. But because he's not obeying what they think he should do, they're threatened by that. He, he comes as the new wine, as the new patch. He comes as the one not to just fit into systems. He comes to take over systems. So they see this and they're threatened by this. They're worried, so they're trying to trap him and corner him. This is the third question in this uh, three-question kind of series that Mark records for us. It begins in verse 23. I think there's really two sections to this. The first one is 23 to 28, in which we see their final question. Beginning in chapter 3, though, we see Christ asking them a question and is actually a very fatal question. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But I want us to look at these two sections, 23 to 28, and then 1 to 6 of chapter 3, to kind of bring some concluding thoughts to this Q&A session going on with Jesus. And it really helped us understand, you know, what's the, what, what is it that we have to make sure we see and understand and grasp? 
So let's begin in verse 23. One Sabbath, and there's the indication of what's going to be the issue now. It was fasting, remember? And before that, it was the kind of people you hang around. Now it's the Sabbath. They're trying to pick at another issue. So on this Sabbath day, he's going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Matthew chapter 12 records the same story. The sense is that they're probably hungry. This text doesn't say that, but Matthew gives us some other information. You kind of get that sense. By the way, this happened around this time of year. So if you're kind of wondering where to put this maybe in a, in a chronological way, their harvest season of the barley fields was usually in the Aprilish time frame. So this could have been a few weeks ago, could have been maybe this week, maybe early April, but we're in the same general time frame as when this would have occurred. So they're walking through the grain fields. They're plucking heads of grain by, their, by hand. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, now this is interesting that in this narrative, they're asking why the disciples uh, um, are doing something. Do you see that in verse 24? Why are they doing something they shouldn't do? In the previous question, they were saying, why are they not doing something they should do? And isn't that a legalist to the maximum degree? They've got a list of do's and don'ts that, that never quits. Are you with me? And they've got it here. In the second question, hey, you should be fasting more and you're not. In this question, hey, you shouldn't be doing that and you are. Like, you can never make a Pharisee happy. You're with me? They're finding this here to be true. Well, Jesus says to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So he goes to the Old Testament. I'll explain in a minute how this answers the question in some ways, but I think what it does more than anything is it sets up the real answer, which is to follow. Verse 27. And so he said to them, the Sabbath, there's the end, there's the issue they're curious about. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And in this last verse of this section, verse 28, you begin to see that, wow, this is a big deal to the Jews. For he's saying, hey, even something that you consider very high and prioritized, very sacred, the Sabbath, I'm Lord of that. So this is a, a massive statement to the Jews. Because the Sabbath was one of their distinctive earmarks. Things like circumcision and the Sabbath were ways you could tell who belonged and who was in the, the national group called Israelites. Now remember, the Sabbath was instituted by God in creation. He gave it to his Jewish people as a way to, to focus and worship on him. These Pharisees had taken and corrupted it and added many regulations and laws to it. But initially, the Sabbath was God-given as a blessing to man, not a burden to man. And so the Jews would implement this, not only weekly, they would implement this every seven years. They would farm the land for six years, and then they would let all the land lay still for a whole year as a way to show their dependence on God and their trust in God. And so every seventh year, the land had rest. But the Jews, for about 490 years, when they were involved in idolatry and spiritual adultery, uh, even sacrificing children, they forgot about God's requirement here in this law, and they didn't let the land rest. They farmed it straight every year. And so to let you know how important the Sabbath was to Jews and to God, when he sent them into captivity for, 
for spiritual adultery, idolatry, and these reasons, he actually made them stay in captivity for 70 years, which is the number of Sabbath years they had missed. And I should say they violated. So if you think this is not a big deal to Jews, you're just looking this through a Western culture. In a Jewish mindset, the Sabbath was a big deal from God to his people. And it was so important that when they violated it, that's really the way God determined the amount of time that they would suffer in captivity. He was going to recoup the 70th, the 70 Sabbaths that they refused to acknowledge. This is a big deal, all right? And so for Christ to say, I'm Lord of that, and I'll just kind of jump to this part in the text. What he's saying is this, I'm the one who gave the law of the Sabbath to begin with. Like you're making the Sabbath like the ultimate pinnacle, but don't forget, I'm Lord of that. Which to a Jew, when he hears that, a Jew, he or she is thinking this. Well, if you're Lord of the Sabbath, and that's what Yahweh gave us, you must be saying you're Yahweh. And this is really the point of all three questions. I love how Christ does this. In every question, he doesn't get sidetracked by the question. He doesn't make it about unclean people, or about fasting, or about the Sabbath. He uses every opportunity to point them to, hey guys, you're missing something that God is here among you. I'm in your midst and you're missing me because you're worried about man-made laws. And remember, not God's law of the Sabbath, their version of the law. They're worried about that or their version of fasting or their version of who's clean and unclean. You're worried about that. That's distracting you from seeing who's actually right in the midst of you. God in the flesh. So in these questions, I don't want you to be distracted either by the actual surface topic. Correct exegesis. Good Bible study shows us that that is the surface topic. Unclean kind of people, according to the Pharisees. Fasting, according to the Pharisees. And then Sabbath observance. But that's really only the surface issue. Christ is getting below that to say, guys, don't miss who's Lord over every bit of that. Don't forget what all those things point to, that Jesus is the Christ. So this, this is another one of those kind of repeated opportunities Christ takes to showcase who he really is. Some of you may be wondering, well, how did they subvert the Sabbath? Were they actually breaking the, the Mosaic law? They actually were not. Deuteronomy 23 actually gives credence, and I could use the word allowance, for someone to be in a field of a neighbor or of a, another person and pluck the grains of head. Actually gives permission for that. The Pharisees, however, um, didn't like the fact that, uh, that this was happening, so they tried to make this look like they were working on the Sabbath. Now, we know that God uh, did not uh, provide, uh, he asked for the Sabbath to be a day of rest. He didn't provide for you to have to do everything, and he provided for you in other ways so you could rest. But he did say this, that you could, if you're in a neighbor's field, pluck the grains with your hand. He said you couldn't put a sickle to the field in your neighbor's uh, area. But there's no sickle involved here, is there? They're just doing what Deuteronomy 23, 25 says they can do. They can use their hands on the Sabbath. It's, it's not against the law. But the Pharisees had actually twisted the law so much that they created 39 additional categories of what would be considered work on the Sabbath in addition to the Mosaic law. You can find this in the Jewish document called the Mishnah. And so they would have all these categories about how far you could travel, uh, if you rub the grain of, sand, of, of, of uh, if you rub the grains in your hands, oh, that's working. Ex energy exerted there. Be careful. So they had all these categories that weren't in God's law, 
but they were man-made extra additions, extrapolations, expansions, just to make sure that everyone could fit into the Pharisees' category of good enough. So that's what the Pharisees are thinking they're violating. And Christ here says, no, 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 no. We're not violating that at all. So the answer to the question is they're not breaking God's law, but he uses this Old Testament story to give some more insight. Look what he says here. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. It says here that he entered the house of God and there was this, um, uh, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. There's a, they usually bring out two loaves on the table of showbread. And he says that on this time, David, which he says is not lawful to eat, but the priest, he says he ate it and he gave it to those who were with him because they were hungry. Now, if you go back, you'll find this story in 1 Samuel 21. Now, let me say to you that in this text, Abiathar is not the priest mentioned in 1 Samuel 21. It's um, Ahimelech. So you may say, well, is that an error? Is that a, a, a problem? No, I think that this is a really good translation that was in the time of Abiathar because Abiathar and Ahimelech are related. And so I think they, uh, Christ knew that the Jews would probably be a little more familiar with Abiathar and David's connection. Go back and read the story. You'll see there's a strong connection between those two. He probably thought they're going to be more readily uh, remembering that connection. He mentions this name. But the story in 1 Samuel 21 is the same as he relates here. And I think there's two subtle references that we don't often know from this text about why David could eat the bread. And I want to bring those to you just briefly. I think you'll like this. Just kind of process this. Because if you read the story in 1 Samuel 21, you'll find that David didn't violate anything either. In 1 Samuel 21, David comes, his men, they're kind of on the run, they're hungry. And before the priest gives him the bread, he asks him a question. He says, are you and your men ceremonially clean? Now, I won't go into what that means. You can read the text. We have children in the room. But he wanted to know if for three days they've been clean. David says, yes. And then he gives them the bread. So I think one could argue from the text that really the priest knew there were situations in which the bread could be shared with the right people at the right time. Are you with me? And Jesus knew that the Pharisees would know that. So he said, hey, guys, remember this story? David didn't break the law. Those men were clean and could eat the bread. But an unclean person just couldn't. So he's kind of letting them know, I'm, I'm aware of that story, and here's the answer to it. But there may be another subtle reference here as well. Here's the second one. What if he's saying subtly, hey, you're all worried about the little bit of work that our guys are doing by rubbing the grain in their hands. You're saying that's work. But when David went to the temple and there were two loaves of hot bread in the, on the table, who fixed those? Someone had to work to get that bread ready. And I wonder if he's not making a subtle jab. Like, hey, even in the temple when David was there, somebody had to work. The priest had to work to get that ready. Saying, guys, come on. There's allowances for certain people to work in time. Do you get the point here? He's just kind of coming at him with some ways to say, you're taking something that's actually meant to be a blessing, the Sabbath, and you're turning it into a burden because it's impossible to obey it according to your regulations. Now, catch that. The Sabbath's designed to be a blessing, not a burden. God instituted it. God created it. It was designed to replenish the Jews, replenish people, refill them, uh, give them a, a, you know, this, this day of rest. But they had made it so hard to obey Sabbath keeping that in trying to keep it correctly, they were more tired at the end of it than they were at the beginning of it. It was a burden, not a blessing. I think that's what he's driving at here. Guys, 
What I create is not meant to be a burden to you, but a blessing. And by the way, when he says uh, it's not made, what does he say here in verse 27, is it? The Sabbath wasn't made for man. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying, let's keep the priority straight. I created, instituted the Sabbath so that you would have rest, replenishment. Don't flip it around and make the very thing that's designed to be a source of blessing to you to actually be the burden upon you. And who has the authority to make sure that's correct? The one who gave us the Sabbath law to begin with. That's what he means when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So the Jews heard this like, wow, you own the Sabbath? You're Yahweh? This is, a, this is an amazing encounter. And it shows us in, in a lot of ways the priorities of Christ. His priorities uh, are not ceremonial law, observance to, to extra additions to what he said. That's not his, his heart, his priorities. His priorities are people and life. So he's showing that here. It doesn't set well, though, with the Pharisees. And as we move on to chapter 3, this next uh, narrative, this next scene, we begin to see just how much trouble this causes for Jesus. In fact, I call it his fatal question, but the ones who are, who are in the end, on the outs, the ones who really experience the fatality of this question, it's not Jesus. Though this does begin uh, the process of them plotting to kill him. The truth is, he shows us what his priorities are and how that those men are missing the whole point. Let's read this. This is a, a scenario that I think happens in connection with what just occurred. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now look at this. Look at this next fatal question. Here he asks them a question. He enters the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Now look at this verse 2. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they're continuing their attitude of trapping, aren't they? They're trying to corner him. Now they're watching him. It's still the Sabbath, or perhaps another Sabbath, I should say, and they're watching him. So he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to those who were watching him, that's what the pronoun them in verse 4 refers to. Go back to verse 2 as well as the last part of chapter 2. These folks who were trying to trap him, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill. So suddenly the Q&A session is now different, isn't it? For three times we've seen these people ask Jesus a question. Now he's got one for them. In every case, Jesus had an answer. They don't. Look what it says here. They were, say it with me, silent. And, and you can see why. Because look at the verse. Look at the question Christ asked them. Is it lawful? So he's actually appealing to their they're uh, kind of like understand. okay, I'll just play your game with you guys. Is it according to your rules to, on the Sabbath, do good? And you should connect that phrase to the phrase uh, save life. It's just kind of a repeated emphasis here. Can I save life? Can I do good? Can I do that on the Sabbath? Or do harm and kill? Can I do that on the Sabbath? Now, both involve energy, don't they? Both involve action. Both involve work. So what are they going to say? If they say, yes, you can save life, what have they just said? Well, you can do work on the Sabbath. Oh, that doesn't fit with uh, our categories, all of our additions, extrapolations. Uh, how do we? They're trapped. But if we say, no, uh, yes, you can do work and you can destroy, well, that's work too, but we don't really believe in destroying. We don't want you to kill. So they're caught. 
This simple question leaves them just dumbfounded. They, can't, they know they can't answer. They're silent. And the reason they can't answer is because their hearts were hardened. Now, let me just be frank with you here and very transparent with you. What they should have said was, you know, Jesus, that's a great question. We're stumped and we're wrong. And this man here in front of you with a withered hand, we've got a withered heart. So will you forgive us like you're about to heal him? Will you heal our hearts like you're going to heal him? You're going to heal him physically. Would you heal us spiritually? That's what they should have said. Would you agree? Like, man, they're just dead in the water. Three questions in multiple days. Christ is showcasing their efforts at self-righteousness. He's exposing all of their, uh, their, their um, the way they kind of put all their faith in who they are and their works. And at this very moment when he stumps them, they could have said, you know, you're right. Yeah, our own man-made laws, our own perversion of your law, our own extrapolations and additions and extensions, all they do is they're a burden. Will you forgive us? And will you just bring us back to understanding who you are? You are God among us, and, and you're going to fulfill the law. Yeah, you're right. We're wrong. Man, case closed. That'd been beautiful. But they don't. They maintain their pride. And they resolutely just stand against him. So much so that really what unfolds next after Jesus heals the man with the withered hand is they go out, look at verse 6, and they hold counsel with the Herodians to destroy or to kill him. It's interesting in this narrative they do in verse 6 what he asks them in verse 3 is actually lawful. Isn't that interesting? Is it lawful to do good or to kill? To save a life or to destroy? They don't say anything, but they actually leave and they start doing the very thing he said. Well, let's destroy him. And they're doing this on the Sabbath. Isn't this just irony uh, at its height? They're worried about working on the Sabbath. And they're picking the disciples apart. No pun intended, right? Man, they're just picking them apart. And on the heels of that criticism, they plot on the Sabbath how to kill someone. <laughs> Who thinks that way except someone with a hard heart? We're not working like you guys. Hey, guys, can, can you get a good shot on this guy and take him out? <laughs> like, yeah, don't work on the Sabbath, but it's okay to kill someone. I mean, it, this is just crazy irony. It's so thick. Notice also in this text how Jesus, again, this is not very subtle, but it's so beautiful. He actually heals the man, and I'm just going to kind of get this out there. We could disagree, but it's not an issue that's going to matter in the end. But I think in this text, he actually heals the man and solves the problem while obeying their version of the law. Notice what he does here. He asks the question. They're silent. He's already asked the man to come to him, so he's standing there with his man with a withered hand. They're not saying anything, so then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Notice in this miracle, he doesn't touch the man. He doesn't do any action. He doesn't rub his eyes. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He just, apparently, based on the text, he stands there and says, stretch out your hand. That's not unlawful on the Sabbath, is it? So he actually saves the man's hand, and yet he doesn't do any work according to them on the Sabbath. He's masterful in his communication and in his actions. And to be there, can you imagine the Pharisees? They're probably thinking, man, this guy gets us at every turn, doesn't he? Of course he does, because he is the ultimate fulfiller of the law. 
He's God in the flesh. He will obey it perfectly with every right motive. Here, they can't do that. So it's just a beautiful picture of Jesus now turning the tables, asking them a question, and suddenly, it's a fatal moment. And we may think it's fatal for him. And I guess physically, on a human level, it ends that way. But truly, it shows to be a fatal moment for them because their heart is revealed. And the real issue now surfaces. As I read through this, I thought about moments when, when things have escalated in a way that you just never thought they would. You know, like, like you're seemingly involved in something innocent. Like maybe a simple question, like this first question. Hey, why do they hang out with those people? Who would have thought that this would end a chapter and a half later with these very people trying to kill, plotting to kill Jesus? It seems like something got out of hand almost, doesn't it? I was thinking about that, and it reminded me of when I was a youth pastor. I was a young youth pastor, and I'm not sure if we had any children yet, probably 25, 26. We took our kids to camp, summer camp in Tennessee at Fort Bluff. Uh, it's a beautiful camp. And I'm not sure, do we have any kids yet or not? So we were what we call singly married. And so we're up there, and the last night of camp occurs, and this is kind of how it was in those days. It may still be this way, I don't know. But in those days, on the last night of camp, a lot of times the churches would kind of uh, have this prank night in which you play pranks on other cabins. And typically it was the boys against the boys, the girls against the girls. And um, I think it started that way. But it eventually became this boys against the boys cabin. Other churches and our church just kind of having fun together. Starts off with like, you know, squirt guns, water balloons, shaving cream. You go find some whipped cream in the kitchen. You just try to find anything to mess up their room or maybe mess them up. It kind of escalated a little bit. And so at one point, we got buckets of water. And I remember going to their cabin and, you know, you kind of knock them. You know what you're doing, but you're having fun. You're thinking it's going to stay under control. We knock on their door, they open it, and we just threw buckets of water and got their sleeping bags wet and their pillows, their clothes, and ha, 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 you won't be able to sleep tonight, that kind of stuff, you know. We think it's funny. We go back to our cabin, and I mean, this started with just the squirt guns, right? A water balloon. Now it's buckets of water. Sleeping bags are wet. We go back to our room, and we're kind of laughing, and just us and the guys, we got shorts on, no shirt. And we're just kind of chuckling. Man, we showed them, didn't we? Knock on the door. We're thinking, they're going to try to do the same thing back to us. So I said, hey, when I open the door, you know, let's just uh, charge at them. And we'll try to keep the stuff out of our room. So I opened the door, and they beat us to it. And they threw these buckets of stuff on us. But it wasn't water. And it just stuck to us. And that three or four guys around me, and it's just... And so we look at it, and we're trying to peel it off, you know, and it's all over. And about 10 seconds into that, someone says, what's that smell? And they start sniffing it. I'm like, I don't know. And it's got, and this is going to be really gross. But it's got, like, little tiny white specks all in it. So we're just suddenly very, we're, we're kind of like these guys. We're dumbfounded. We're silent. Like, I thought this was just a water battle. Like, and suddenly we realized... Someone has kind of, someone's thrown raw sewage on us. That's what it was. Someone had an RV there, and my best recollection is they just emptied the RV, put it in buckets, opened our door, and shoo. So I'm standing there smelling like, you know what? The guys are, and I'm like, and then it hits me what this is. I'm like, and suddenly, how does something so innocent 
gets so out of hand. We go to the gym, we're trying to shower, everything's ruined, and man, I'm steaming mad. I don't think I'm sinning. I might be, but I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle of that, right? We go get the camp director up in the middle of the night, like, hey, what's with this, man? We were just having fun. And he brings us in. We have this come to Jesus moment. I'm not sure how it ended. We got through the night. The next morning, we're all set to go home. And uh, it just didn't end well. There was not a lot of unity, I'll just tell you that. As I think about this situation, I'm reminded of moments when you think it's just something innocent. Like, we're just asking a question. We're just having fun with water balloons. We're just trying to play a few pranks. And it ends in a way where, man, something's way out of control. That's what's happening here. It's way out of control. The reason is, is because of their hardness of heart. And look what this text says. This, this uh, culminating moment does to Christ. When he looked around, verse 5, when he looked around at them, and he sees that they're resolute in their hardness of heart, that they're not budging. They're going to hold to their version of the law, to their means of worth and good and value. It says that he is angry and grieved. You catch that? Without sin, undoubtedly. But angry and grieved at what? Not their external issues. Not their misinterpretation of the Sabbath or fasting or people. Nothing about people, practices, or even priorities really bothered him externally. He saw now and revealed to them the real issue, the hardness of their heart. That's why they weren't budging in question one, question two, or question three. And now when he asked them a question, they're not moving off their self-righteous stance. And that grieves our Lord. And so he's angry and he's saddened because of their hardness of heart. Can I say to you, do you know what grieves our Lord? It's the hardness of a heart. Not the external issues that sometimes we get focused on. I'm not saying those aren't issues and at times we need to make adjustments externally, yes. But what drives the outside is the inside. And when there's a hard heart, that's why people don't move off their preferences. That's why people don't move off their stances about how they find self-righteousness. and I should say how they find righteousness in general. They don't move off those things because their hearts are hard. And you have to deal with what's inside first. You can never adjust the outside only and expect the inside to follow suit. It's always the opposite. You have to aim for the heart. And when God changes the heart, then the outside will follow. But the outside will never adjust if the heart continually stays hard. What made their heart hard? Let me give it to you in plain, street, closed kind of language. They continually said no to Jesus. Remember question one? Hey, why is this going on? He answered them. Instead of saying, oh, you're right. Thank you. Like, nope, we're not buying that. We'll try another angle. They come at Jesus. Hey, what about this fasting thing? He gives an answer. Instead of saying, Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, thank you. We want to submit to that. You're right. We're wrong. Okay, he got us again. Let's try another angle. They come at him with the Sabbath. Instead of saying, oh, we see that it's really about who you are, not necessarily the, the, the laws themselves. Wow, 
thank you. We, we were wrong. They just stay resolute in their nose. You catch that? They're always right. Jesus is always wrong. It's always no to Jesus. And when your heart always says no to Jesus, you will increasingly and slowly harden it over time. I say that because I don't want you to underestimate the the importance of saying yes to Jesus. You may say, it's just a small thing, Todd, but when Christ comes at you to overtake your systems, to make sure you're not trusting in the wrong things for your righteousness and your worth and your value, when he's saying to you, hey, don't put more on the practice than the person, don't get distracted by what you're doing from who you should be doing it for, when he comes to you, to you with all that, and you say, hey, back off, Jesus, this is the way I do it. Back off, Jesus. Don't mess with my fill-in-the-blank, whatever system, whatever habit. When he comes at you in love and kindness because he cares to help you see him more clearly, and all you do is kind of stay resolutely kind of bound in your own system, your preferences, your way of doing it, your methods, your additions, let's just be honest, your extras, when that's more important than what they should be pointing to, every time God comes to you, Christ comes to you and says, hey, I want to work with you out of that. And you say, no, no, no. Your heart hardens. And the idol grows stronger. And the end of this unattended to idol, the end of an idol that you're not willing to chop away at, is it will crush you under its own weight. Because you'll never be good enough for it. The expectations grow. The amount expected grows. I mean, everything comes heavy. And what's meant to be a blessing is the life of Christ, Jesus to us, the treasure of our Lord's a blessing. Suddenly because of all the extras, the additions, the way you've interpreted your mis, uh, version of it, so to speak, is now this weight you can't even bear up under. No one can be that good. And so you give up. Before you get there, hear Jesus beckoning you, calling you out of those systems and, and ways to find worth and to find your rest in him. Don't let the things that you do, though maybe helpful and healthy, distract you from the one you're doing them for. Because the real issue isn't the things you're doing, per se, the habits you are doing or not doing. That's not the issue. The issue is what's beneath that, and that is the posture of your heart. And so we're left with this really simple take-home truth. I'll have you say it with me. It's pretty, uh, you're probably already there. It's right in the text. It's not hard to figure out. But let's say it together, can we? Our Lord's priority is, first and foremost, the heart. And legalism and loopholes only harden what he wants to heal. And if you constantly find a way around God's commands, through them, underneath them, you can explain away anything you're doing. If your whole intention is to make sure at the end of the day you're right and God's wrong, that is a road to a hard heart. And in your effort to appear to be self-righteous, you will actually find that it leads to self-destruction. So what's my aim today? is to get you and me to have a yes, Lord, heart on every issue. Yeah, it may not be fasting. 
or the Sabbath for us. It may not be who's clean or unclean. That may not be our issue. But I guarantee you there are issues about which the Lord is kind of pressing in on you. Maybe there are things in which you're, you're kind of wrapping up your self-worth. What makes you righteous. What kind of gives you significance. Things you've done and created. God's calling you away and out of that. Making sure that points to him. That's not taking his place. And when he does that. What's your answer to him? My aim is that you would say today. Yes Lord. Whatever that issue. I don't know what your issue is. I know what mine are. I deal with idols every single week of my life. Things that want to come into my life and say, hey, find your significance in me. Man, I got to get the ax out every week and just chop away at things that want to distract me and pull me away. I was telling Julie last night just about the, the current one. Just asking her to pray for me. And that, you know, just the tendency is to, to want to put more stock into this and I can just hear the voice of God saying, hey, I've got what you need. Trust me. And man, when I hear the Lord saying that to me, I don't want to say no to that. Because the end of all those no's is a hard heart. And that's fatal. So don't forget, in this text, yeah, they went to seek to put him to death when he answered that question. When he asked them that question. But the real, one, the real ones who suffered the fatal disaster, it was not Jesus. It was those Pharisees who missed Jesus. Church, let's not have a hard heart because we're saying no and then in the end miss Jesus and it'd be fatally too late. I'm praying this morning that you would fill in the blank with whatever issue wants to draw your trust away from Jesus. And you would say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. I trust you for all of my righteousness and worth and significance. That's the yes heart. It says no to self-righteousness and yes to Jesus's. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.